Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Chris Johns. I work for the Building Communities Trust. We're a national charity in Wales, and we do two main things. We support the Invest Local programme, which works with 13 small communities across Wales, helping the residents of those areas to improve those communities in line with their own ambitions. We provide them with a million pounds over 10 years to do that, and a lot of support and advice and facilitation as well as well. And we also manage a wider network of community organisations for the purposes of peer learning and increasingly advocacy so that we can connect people in different different corners of the, of the country who've got similar goals and interests. And Jess Sylvester, who we heard from in the last episode and the sort of the part one, if you like, to this second part, looking at community development and COVID-19, is part of your team then based up in Meiskirchen in, in Bangor, yeah? Yeah, well, she's part of our network. We don't network. She's, yeah. she's not employed by us. She's employed lo- locally, but we uh, she's part of a team who who are on the program we fund, and we work very closely with Jess and people in similar roles in the other communities. And she spoke positively about being part of that network in terms of remaining connected with people who are facing maybe similar challenges. So, from your perspective, to whom would you be advocating? At this point in time, because there's such an emphasis and a focus on clearly a public health aspect of the pandemic. And then the locally, and it came through loud and clear in that last episode that people are very focused on those hyper-local needs, organizing what was great, I thought came through loud and clear from Meisgurchen is quite how organically people were organizing. They weren't requiring outside agents to to mobilize it, maybe to help, you know, add strength to it. But in terms of just getting things going, it seemed to be really, really quite organic, which I thought reflected really, really well on the capacity in these communities that are often described as perhaps lacking in, in it. To whom would you be advocating and who's listening at the moment? I think different people are listening up to different things and um, we can advocate with people, we can support people to advocate, but I think people are usually their own best advocates. And for some of the very practical things that people like Jess are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, the key advocacy is local because that's where some of the decisions are being taken. And our role there, I think, is to support them to advocate rather than do the advocacy for them and often suggest ways of doing it or help collect data which might be useful for, do it, for doing that. But I think there's also a longer-term ad, um, aspect to this, even if long-term field in terms of months rather than years, which is where we go after this and what are the next steps. And even what does preparing another possible stage of lockdown looking like. Mm-hmm. And there the coordination role of Welsh Government becomes important. And we will play a, quite a central role there because we're the only national body in, in place to do this and we have the connections with the programme of both kind of organising the advocacy and bringing the information together which helps make that advocacy effective but in doing so we'd want to do that alongside the people we work with in fact we're just about to do a digital consultation exercise on exactly how we do the advocacy which is going off over the next two or three weeks if we do it face to face we'll have people from local communities alongside us to make sure their voices are heard, are heard directly. And so, you know, a recurring theme of all of these podcasts over the years has invariably been around learning. You used the word, I think, yourself in your introduction. I guess learning probably is happening almost hour by hour. (laughs) 
<laughs> day by day at the moment with these sorts of things because I mean I sort of joked with Jess in that last episode that you know when she'd applied for the job she wasn't necessarily expecting in the first year to you know year and a half to be to be doing this sort of work in a pandemic in a lockdown there can't be many people I suppose certainly in the UK then I mean I guess you know parts of Africa parts of East Asia will have experienced things like SARS and Ebola and other you know forms of of, of health kind of crisis but for us this is something altogether new and different how does that learning kind of happen how is it captured and to what purpose is it sort of mobilized the learning happens at the moment, largely through com- through conversations and documenting conversations, we're looking now at slightly more sophisticated ways of actual data collection, um, albeit keep, keeping it simple and practical and working with people to try and make sure they actually record more of what they're doing, who they're, who they're helping and how much of that, that is being done. But it, there's an awful lot of stories being told. The key thing at the moment is to have also ways of sharing those stories and sharing the activities that people are doing so that people can learn from it almost in real time, which is why we've convened networks of organizations um, to try and make sure that people can do that. And we've got about three different networks on the go at the moment to draw in different people with different experiences. And we have found that people have picked up and run with ideas that they're picking, they're taking from other areas very quickly. And we can see that in real time with the communities we practically support, that they are, they are taking on area, ideas they've picked up from other areas. So there are two levels of learning going on. One is the learning that it impacts on what people are doing on a week-to-week basis to for providing support within their communities. But there's also then the learning we pick up and take and try and digest that we would take forward to mm-hmm. government. In fact, I, I had a very long conversation with civil servants yesterday, which was based very strongly on a huge amount of information I was given drawing on experiences of about 25 different community organisations. And I was able to take that, share it with Welsh Government, and then feed back some of the stuff to the organisations that the Welsh Government were interested in. In a different environment, we'd have had a more participatory approach, but still we were able to take grassroots experiences to people thinking about the policies for moving forward. I mean, given that you've got that national, sort of Wales-wide panorama then, if you like, I mean, do you find that then quite a privileged, I'm not sure privilege is the right word, but a privileged position to oh, be in, to be able to pull all that together? It is a privileged position because we have that overview and we have the chance to make points that people who are focused deep in doing really valuable work in particular neighbourhoods that they wouldn't get because of the scale they're working on. And it also makes you aware that you're taking on quite a considerable responsibility in trying to make sure that the points you're making are faithful to the experiences that you've been told. And that's one of the reasons why we want to be very careful about what we're saying and to check back on a regular basis to ensure that what we're, what we're saying is, is accurate. And that chimes with something that Michael Bartman over in Manitoba referred to in respect of his remit in that last episode, covering a, a much, much broader canvas, a larger canvas than than, than, than Wales, uh, just with his part of Canada. But it was the sense yeah, yeah. that it was feeding into other things then that was being pulled together and part of the, the community economic development network that he's, that he's involved with. And he again spoke of that needing to uh, remain in touch because I suppose playing devil's advocate a little bit there's there's a danger that that immediacy and the things learning new things on that quite day-to-day basis and not looking too far ahead i suppose you know with, with the best intentions we can be trying to fire off all sorts of things to different people or we we've heard this we've noticed this we're responding to this and and, and that's understandable because there can be quite differing demands being made of people and new demands being made to people on a day-to-day week-to-week basis but like you said i think it's important to, to, to that keeping in touch i think is key 
clearly government as well will have its own priorities at this point in time and, and, and there's a role I suppose in trying to keep citizens safe and, and so on they need they need the likes of you to be keeping in touch with with these people in these communities as well of course well they do because they don't have a route to do so them do so themselves and I think government are generally now and this won't always been the case but generally now aware that they need to get the honest view of people working in communities that it might be convenient in the short term get a sanitized view but it doesn't actually help them with effective policy making in the long in the long term which is why having views come forward from organizations that are keen to provide an accurate representation of what's going on and proper advocacy is is, impo- is important to them and i've actually been quite heartened by the nature of the conversations we've had with welsh government about that and they do actually feel that there's more genuine interest in how we build on what's going on at the moment within communities than there might have been in the past. To a certain extent in Wales, there's been a reasonable dialogue with Welsh Government over the last few years from the community development sector then in in the, in the broadest sense. I mean, there's a danger you make it sound as if it's very homogenous and, and, and the same across the piece and it's not. But via programmes, for example, like Communities First, and presumably this sort of now builds on that. But something that Michael said in the last one was that actually there's a danger that as things perhaps begin to fragment or new fora get set up and new alliances happen, is that actually those that jostling that maybe people like us, in inverted commas, have had to do to get a, a seat at the table, we may have to fight it again to make sure that that seat is still there for us when things return to, again, in inverted commas, normal. Yeah, I'm afraid I disagree with that premise because I actually don't think that there has been a willingness to have that dialogue. I think in Communities First, there was a large extent to which government knew best and they were telling people how to, they were trying to define what community work development was and they were really talking down to people. I think what it's taken has been, firstly, a shift in a shift in political leadership, maybe the same political party, but it's very different people, shift in civil servants, but also a shift in the nature of community work, the emergence of a number of organisations, um, people who have not been dependent on state funding, who've not been slow in bringing their, their views forward. I think they have actually helped create a space for people to get listened to as, a more, as more independent actors. And I think particularly, from my perspective, the work of the various groups in the Festiniog area have actually created an indirect space for others to follow just because of their willingness to be vocal. And I think it's made the environment for wider community development practitioners easier. And I think there is something about government having to deal with people as independent actors rather than clients, which provides for a healthier relationship. The pockets of resistance that Seanhead Pierce, Dr. Seanhead Pierce, Cardiff University referred to in a, a previous episode, and certainly the people up in Blanifestinio and others that have been on this podcast as well are, are very much those part of those freedom fighters. That, that phrase always conjures in my mind. So what's, uh, what's next for you and for BCT then over the next few weeks when I mean, you refer to it, maybe there being you know a second lockdown a second wave just before lockdown we finished a major process of consultations with community organizations across wales about their relationship to the public sector what would make them stronger and more able to keep on supporting and representing their localities and a lot of stuff that's come out of that has rung very true during the coronavirus crisis and we need to make sure that those issues are going into the fore of government, which was what yesterday's conversation was starting the process of. And so that work will continue. But I think we also need to help people both coming out of lockdown, preparing for what comes next, 
and what comes next may well be very, very tough economic times. But also have one eye on what you do if you go back in, because I think that's certainly possible, if not likely, that we may have to readjust, that we may have to go back into some other form of, the, of working like this, where we need to take on board the lessons of both what we did well and effectively and the bits that we haven't covered so well. And I think we've, there's been a collective provision of basic needs, which has often worked fairly well across Wales. But perhaps we could do, have done collectively more on the well-being side, recognising the real strains that you've put on people. We can prepare to do that better, I think, next time round, in a sense. So we're going to have two, almost three challenges. One is helping people practically with what comes after lockdown. The second is making sure that the government agenda is as supportive of communities as it can be. And the third is actually facing the the, the real chance of, uh, of having to go mm-hmm. through this again. Yeah, yeah. And I think what was heartening was listening to Jess and, and, and Dullan and James in Bangor. It came through, I think, fairly loud and clear with James's contribution was how there's a group that had perhaps been part of the, the, the broader fabric then in terms of community activity, but really found its niche and really was able to play an active part in what they were doing to respond to people's essential needs on the Maiskirchen estate. But it wasn't just them helping out and lending a hand. It was almost forging new alliances and relationships. It went beyond just cooperation. Um, and it seemed to yeah. appear that there was a willingness, again, I guess as well, just based on the conversation that was informed by by shared common values and a recognition of, of some of the inequalities that exist to want to continue to work. And I think that's quite heartening. I suppose there's, at this point or in this sort of current phase, it's difficult not to sound a little bit glib or crass, but that, that sense, don't let a good crisis go to waste. They seem to be alert and cognizant, which I thought was great to, okay, yes, we can do other things. Let's not lose sight of what that might be. But at the same time, let's not lose sight of what needs to be done you know, today, this week, to get meals out to people and so on. And I thought that was that was great. Yeah. So I think there's probably going to be a, a few more, I would say, pleasant surprises, but there'll be, there'll be, you know, capacity will emerge and make itself clear in communities about how they can contribute to some of those adjustments after the end of this. The difficulty is that they're clearly, it's already emerging, and I think evidence will continue to emerge potentially over a number of years as to how the impact of the, the pandemic will have a disproportionate impact on some communities of you know of interest, shared characteristics or place than it will on others. And you know, that's where the government policy and, and other infrastructure bodies, I guess, need to be able to, you know, step up to the plate. Yes. And the other thing we have no immediate feel for, although you can do macroeconomic analysis, which would give you a, a good a good sense on this, is the direct impact of the of the economic fallout yeah. on particular communities. Because depending on which, what, you know, what kind of jobs people have got or have had, they may have different opportunities to get back into them or they may face really tough times when those jobs just disappear. And that, I think, is one of the things that's lurking over many community organisations at the moment. There's a certain degree of knowledge, but it's only partial. And it's almost, it is the sort of Damocles hanging, yeah. hanging over people at the moment as they think about what they might be doing. And that's on top of the issues that you just that, that you just raised about particular types of community where we know there are there are already deep problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. It will require people like yourself and others involved with building communities trust to keep articulating them, to keep vocalising them, and to keep telling government and other policymakers about them. I'm really grateful for your time, Chris. I appreciate you busy and uh, for carving out a half hour or so of your time to to, to speak to us. No, no worries at all. Always um, a pleasure. And it would be great to keep in touch 
with the work yes, that's been going on to help give it a platform for people outside of Wales and, and possibly the UK. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to Helen and David from one of your areas in St. Melons in the east of Cardiff. They're doing some brilliant work. I think it well worth the chat. So yeah, so once again, thank you and um, keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks a lot, Russell. Take care. You're listening to the Community Development Podcast. My name is Russell Todd. You can follow the podcast and myself on Twitter at comdevtpodcast, C-O-M-M-D-E-V-T podcast, and at Llanerch, double L-A-N-N-E-R-C-H. Okay, so that was Chris Johns from Building Communities Trust, looking at things from his sort of national perspective, an organisation that overarches you know, areas across Wales, a country of you know, 3 million people. Uh, and although there's not a huge number of areas, that's quite a dispersed geography. But we're going to zoom in a little bit now into one of those areas, really into the hyper-local now. And the money crossing the city of Cardiff. Um, so I'm over towards the west of the city. We're going to the east of the city where we have visited uh, once before. We went to Rumney, where we visited the Benthig Library of Things project with Becky Harford's terrific conversation with her. That was for podcast 15, but we're back in the east of Cardiff, but this time we're in St. Melons, and I have the pleasure of Helen Griffiths and David Clegg. How are you both? Hi, yeah, well, I'm good fine. to be good, with you. Good to be here. Recording in lockdown, obviously, uh, as so many of these episodes have been of late. Helen, so what, what do people need to know about you and what you get up to in, in St. Melons? So firstly, I'm a resident of St. Melons. I've lived here for just over 10 years. Um, before that, I was uh, a youth worker here. So I was a youth worker for 10 years as well. And it was through that youth work that I came to move here and to be more involved uh, with the families, um, the neighbours that I'd got to know. And then a couple of years ago, um, we started a project called Hope St. Melons that comes under Hope Trust Cardiff. So it's a charity called Hope Trust, but Hope St. Melons is one of the projects of Hope Trust. And it is what you were saying uh, there, Russell, it's that hyper-local focus um, on just one small community, quite broad hopes and aims of what we want to do. So community building, improving well-being trying to create opportunities for education and occupation. So really quite broad, but very narrowly focused on this one community. What's your connection, David, to St. Melons? I'm a local church pastor in um, old St. Melons, actually a bit closer to Trowbridge than St. Melons, but we're kind of right in the middle of three housing estates, Lanrumney, St. Melons and Trowbridge. Um, so I've been doing that for about 10 years. But I have a business background, so a completely different background from what I'm doing now in uh, large um, construction projects. It's very interesting to get down to, if you like, the nitty gritty of community. One of the things I do as well is I'm a chaplain in the local high school. And it's there really where I got to gain a real understanding of how needy the community is. And in episode 24, I spoke to people up on the Maeskirchen estate in Bangor in North Wales. And that was recorded quite early in the lockdown. I think we've been in lockdown for about three to four weeks at the point that was recorded. And some of the people involved with that work there were telling me, people like Jess, uh, people like uh, Dullan, people like James, on that episode, 
very much focused in those early days on responding to, uh, well, identifying, but responding to some of those urgent, essential, basic needs that people have. And so they were talking about you know, food and they were talking about contact and interaction, access to medicines and, and the like. And clearly there would have been people taking on caring responsibilities if people were shielding or they were poorly or, or whatever. We're a little bit further into lockdown and I'm not saying that fundamentally anything has, has hugely changed, but what does a local organisation like Hope St. Melons learn? What does it hear is going on in communities this number of weeks into you know a lockdown which you know for us in the west is you know, largely unprecedented yeah absolutely those immediate needs shelter food bills you know were there from the start but i think where that right from the start there was also those mental health needs those needs for connection and community and that social connection and that um support from f- local friends and neighbors local family that people relied on to um stay well mentally and emotionally were gone so we were quite focused quite quickly on trying to find ways for people to connect um so through facebook particularly using the site we have to connect people to share stories but also trying to find ways we could still get out in the community within keeping within the restrictions we'd been given but still being able to connect with people um so quite quickly we started doing um, activity packs for families that were a way of connecting with families but also um, we're providing them with activities that were arts-based, play-based um, that supported particularly um, children that were you know, t- used to having all their friends around them and all that activity in school, supported their mental health and their mental well-being um, in the home and craft-based activities that could be to do with stress relief or could be to do with mindfulness that used um, things in the home, things in the garden, so that they were accessible, but also so that they are sustainable. So after the pack is done, they can create those same activities after they've used the resources we've given, just to keep supporting the well-being of the family. I can sympathise through that perspective as well with, uh, with you know with three kids and trying to homeschool those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, David, presumably you're you're tuned into the needs of young people as well, and, and and families, not to the exclusion of other other people, clearly. But given that that role at schools that you referred to, I think young people and children are finding it. Well, I say they're finding it harder. There are different types of difficulties, I suppose. But I wonder how well we oldies are tuned into their needs at this time. <laughs> yes, um, I must admit, going in as a chaplain, I thought perhaps I, would I ever be able to connect with young people of that age. But what I've discovered is the role that grandparents play in the community. So they kind of relate a lot more to grandparents often than sometimes their parents or their siblings. I mean, certainly for us, our involvement initially was because the school said, look, can you help some of our really vulnerable families who are on the edge anyway? Mm. And this has actually involved three cases of homelessness. So that has been kind of even more on the edge as it were and initially as you said we were involved with buying groceries and all of that kind of thing for the for the families um, but it, it is interesting the connections that we're making is through young people the school got on board very quickly and set up a 24-hour helpline which we've been running since the middle of march now um, so we've been able to track the whole thing through 
the four areas of our community, starting with a lot of kind of grocery buying and then the underlying needs starting to come to the surface and the conversations through the helpline, the, um, the phone line. As people got used to what we were doing and felt that they could open up a little bit more, it starts to get to the needs that are already there, which um, I know Helen knows and I've discovered through the school that there are huge needs. Over 50% of the young people are on free school meals. 60% are actually classed as traumatised already before this, which was a huge shock to me. So working with the school, we found that education, academic education, is a part of what you have to do as a teacher these days or as a community worker. It's a lot more than that. And certainly now the stage that we've got to it's about actually talking to people and realizing how many people are just lonely and isolated and so appreciate any kind of connection. And I think through the food buying and utility support and conversation, I think people have realized there are people out there that care and are happy to talk to them. That talking is important. I mean, one of the things that Chris was talking about earlier in this episode was the extent to which his role then heading up BCT and, uh, you know, having perhaps the opportunity to make representation to, you know, elected representatives, to politicians, to other charities and so on, was that he can only do that effectively if he's got the stories, the tales, you know, maybe anecdotal, but nonetheless, the things that are going on. You know, given that we are in lockdown and we don't have the mobility and the freedom just to go wherever we want and you know, knock on doors and so on, he's really reliant on yourselves to be telling those stories. And of course, mm. people will, will want to be heard. They will want to tell you what's going on. And not necessarily, I don't suppose, mm. to, in a way that says yeah. that, you know, I want to put my hand up to ask for something or to say I'm in need or, or, or whatever, but to actually sort of say, okay, this has happened. This is something that's going on. This has been a positive experience, perhaps. This is an opportunity for going forward. And it needs people locally for them to tell. So what are the sort of things that you've been, that you've been hearing? I really agree with that. And I think, I mean, what Dave was saying about the amount of young people that the school are saying are sort of traumatised. And I think this period has been traumatic for a lot of people. And what you were saying, Russell, about the importance of being heard is really fundamental. And again, there's the challenge of how do you hear each other? How do you listen to each other when you're physically apart? And I think one of the things that's been interesting is it's not necessarily the same quality um, of connection, but because we've all been forced to social media to connect with others, there's a growing fostering of community through local Facebook groups and other sort of forums where people are sharing their story. And like you say, it's not just requests for help, it's just sharing your story so other people know what's going on. And I think being heard is very healing, but so is also hearing your own story and someone else's story and to realise you're not alone, you're not the only one going through something. I know I find that really powerful and healing as a neighbour myself to hear other people's stories and to have my story heard. And so I think that's been really important. Um, something we've been trying to do to kind of support that online space for listening and for storytelling is starting up something called the St Mellon's COVID Diaries. And we've encouraged people to spend a bit of time reflecting and 
share what their experience has been like with no requirement to tell any particular story. It doesn't have to be positive. It could be, it could be the things that have encouraged you, but it could be actually, this is what's been really hard for me and it's still hard for me and just letting people know. So trying to collect those stories as well so that we can build that common memory of what we've, what we're going through. Mm -hmm. I love that diary's idea. Excellent. And are people engaging with that? It does take a lot of encouragement and we really have tried to push that it's the St. Melon's COVID diaries because I think there are lots of diary projects going on but I think trying to encourage actually the stories from St. Melon's are important. We're a part of the city that isn't always that well listened to. We do lack some representation at times and I think to really encourage the community actually this is for this community, it's your stories that we want to hear. It's it's our stories that are important. So it has taken quite a lot of encouragement of people that actually their story is worth telling and that people want to hear it. Thankfully, we've got quite good connections with some of the local youth teams, some of the local schools. Um, so using the relationships we already have to kind of bring out those stories has been really important. Yeah, I think the interesting thing from a church point of view is that actually things have worked out in the opposite to what we might have expected in terms of lockdown, that it's made us go to where the people are rather than thinking people will come to where we are, you know, in our church buildings, etc. And um, so, I mean, just, just this week, we're doing some fun events in the community. We run a Santa's sleigh in uh, Christmas time. And we're running it now in June, which is something we could never have expected to do. <laughs> and in a very safe, social distance way, we had almost street parties going on yesterday as we went around various communities. And I think it's this one theme that keeps coming out is that I haven't been out for three months or I, you know, that almost everyone we speak to, there's someone in the household that has meant that the community's been in lockdown and it's, so it's not always a matter of not having enough money for things. It's that people don't go out. I think it's just because of the deliveries that we've been doing. And now we've been doing some fun packs as well, but like Helen's saying, we're starting to, to visit places that, you know, I don't think we would have gone to before. And because people are at home, they're coming out, they're sitting in their front, you know, they can't, don't have back guards, they're sitting at the front. So there's almost a new sense of community emerging. And uh, although we're not running a story project, people are actually just telling their stories, sitting on a deck chair in their front garden <laughs> as we've been going around. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, there was a great article in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago around communities in Liverpool who had reclaimed their back lanes. Yeah. Mm. And it wasn't as if these had been gated off or anything like that. They were always there. They were always accessible, but they hadn't been recognised as a sociable space and a space, well, to a certain extent, not a safe space either because they were messy and, and there was litter and glass and stuff like that. They cleaned it all up and they've reclaimed it and they've used stuff that's around and it was crates and pallets and things like mm -hmm. that to fashion sort of you know, forms of furniture and tables and things like that as well. So there's yeah. that sort of reuse and, and, and recycle ethos as well. And it was colourful and it was bright. It was, it was, it was lovely to see. I think that um, that example is exactly, I think what we're seeing here is that um, Dave and I are involved in still very relational organisations, but they are sort of um, organisations. But I think what's not being seen as much is just that in a completely unorganised way, neighbours are connecting with neighbours and reclaiming spaces and building relationships and connections that have been lost over years. And there's a real strength, I think, that's growing. So I think as much as for our community um 
mental health as a priority because there is a lot of need. I think there's also growing support amongst neighbours, growing connection amongst neighbours. And I think as well, one of the things for our community is that because pre-existing to COVID, um, there was a lot of, there is a lot of mental health needs in the community. There's also a lot of resilience that comes with that, a lot of compassion, a lot of understanding that it's a community that actually does know quite a lot about what it is to suffer and what it is to struggle. And in that, people are offering each other a lot of compassion, a lot of support. I feel that as a neighbour, I feel understood. I feel the compassion of my neighbours towards my mental health. And that's a place of strength. And so I think in terms of talking about mental health, in our context, in our local context, I think for Hope St Melons as an organisation, we are looking to try and um, meet needs, but we're also trying to highlight where our strengths are and what our resilience is and do as much as we can to make the most of that. I think that's absolutely right, Helen. We're finding just the same, that um, in some ways, the best that we can do is be a connecting point um, to just encourage that neighbour with neighbour and uh, people are starting to come up with ideas for how we can they can improve things and change things around for themselves which i don't think may have happened before because people tend to be isolated and certainly the trowbridge end where where we tend to be working there is no center at all um, i think it's probably true of st melons as well there's no like village center there's no kind of place where people congregate even in normal times never mind lockdown time so I think everyone's starting to talk about how to do that um, going forward and realising that because they are isolated, they may be doing more for themselves than they would have done before, actually kind of finding ways to help themselves feel better because they haven't got the, the services that they had before to meet their needs. Um, so it is creating a sense of community in places that just don't lend themselves to it, you know, there is people mm -hmm. constantly saying, look, there's nothing here for us if we go out anyway, you know, and there's nothing for the young people. And that's why I think we're starting to think the schools have to step up and be the hubs uh, as much as anything. And, and that's what they want to do um, and be places of expertise, uh, certainly for our project where we're pulling together community groups, the school and ourselves. The school's got huge experience in safeguarding mental health and we, we can rely very heavily on their expertise without us all having to be experts, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a critical point you're making, David, around you know, the lack of things like you know, village mm -hmm. centres, town centres, yeah. that social infrastructure. You know, it's the stuff that I, yeah. call, I call critically mundane. Mm. We don't value benches. We don't value places to stop and chat and uh, see local information, notice boards and like. We don't mm. value that mm. until it's not there. We notice it when it's not there, less less so than we notice when it is there, which is not to say that we don't use it or that it's not regarded or valued. I think it, it's that mundane stuff. It's that everyday stuff, but it's critical. So the different hat I'm part of a, a social enterprise called Grow Social Capital. And one of the things we want to do is to tell those people who have the influence and maybe the resource to be able to fashion social capital and help nurture it, housing associations, clearly public bodies like local authorities, but it's also community groups as well as to say, okay, let's create spaces as well as opportunities to mm. interact, to encounter difference, whether that's different 
colours of skin, different faiths, different opinions, different views, different interests, different ages or whatever it might be, rather than exist in these very atomized communities where people only really see each other as they're kind of going out to the car to drive to work. I think communities are, are much more cohesive and they're much more trusting. And this is where some of the theory around social capital, I think, really begins to really gets get get at the heart of I think what it means to be a citizen or to be to be a resident or to to feel connected to something or somewhere is that sense of trust and it builds and insulates and incubates trust. And without trust, we're not going to open up to people in communities. We're not going to open up to pastors. We're not going to come out and see, well hang on, why is why is Santa in the sleigh <laughs> in the middle of June? What's what's, what's going on here? Without that trust, yeah. things don't necessarily take take root. Yeah. Maybe to the same extent or maybe as quickly. So I think it's interesting what you what yeah. you said. I think the other thing that struck mm. me, David, you're talking. Correct me if I'm putting wrong words into your mouth. That you've not been to before, or you you wouldn't have expected to have gone. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating from one point of view, in the sense that we have a much more hyper local focus at the minute because of restricted mobility. Mm. Yet even so, we're still finding places. You know, you'd, you'd think we'd we'd know all about our hyper local. Actually, there's still places that we can. Yeah discover whether they're alleyways whether yeah, little absolutely. patches of green i yeah. love the, the telephone boxes being turned yes, into libraries yeah. Yeah. you know those things as well very very resourceful people putting things in windows um, competitions yeah. posters little spontaneous art type projects all, all i was going to say was that i think one of the problems has been that the housing associations have to do things by contract and I kind of aware of that from my background that when people have to do things so that they have to create certain community spaces and operate them up to a point. But you don't always have the commitment of the local people then. And if you can get a momentum going, you can create community almost where you would never expect it, as you say, in the back alleys, someone starting to grow things and uh, advertise them. So I would, that, that's all I was going to say, that there's only so much that you can do for people or to people. And I think this is making people start to think, wow, we could make a difference ourselves here. We could make things happen, you know? I think that's really true that um, I think what you were saying as well, Russell, just about building trust and what a huge resource that is in a community and also how much a community struggles if that's not there. And I think this has been a time where trust in your neighbour has been just really strengthened. And that's a resource that we can take going forward through sort of the rest of this period with COVID but you know long into the future hopefully that sense of trust and that sense of mutuality and so that that really that movement of, of mutual aid in organized and just completely spontaneous forms in the community um, is a real resource and I think is um, empowering the community to reclaim some things that maybe they felt in their community um, weren't theirs whether that's physical spaces, reclaiming those, whether that's ways of doing things, so whether that's ways of organising around food or organising around other kinds of sort of poverty relief in the community, reclaiming those and saying, actually, you know, me and my neighbours can sort that out and this is what we've learnt. My hope really is that bigger organisations, bigger third sector organisations, statutory organisations can be listening to those voices that of, of the community saying this is this is what we've learned because that has, again, coming back to sort of our mental health, that has such a huge impact on our mental health to feel empowered, to feel like we are equipped and we are resilient rather than feeling like we're disempowered and like we don't have the solutions ourselves and like we're always in that position of need rather than that position of strength. And that's something that I think is um, 
one of the great stories of COVID, not just in our community, but in lots of communities of communities, communities realising the strength they have. That's absolutely fundamental. Um, we've been really blessed that we've had charitable organisations have, have actually sort of fed funds into what we've been doing. But the good thing about that is, is that um, it's sort of like uh, it's it's relational rather than process or in the sense that what a neighbour finds out that these people can help and they can tell a neighbour rather than having to fill a form in. <laughs> and then what we've noticed happening is people are, are saying, you've no idea what this meant to have this help at this time. Now, what can we do? You know, it's not just a one way thing. It, so we're going, well, well, what do you think you can do? Oh, well, I've got this and I can do that. And it starts to free people up. So they're not focused so much now on those immediate desperate needs, but they're kind of starting to, we, what can we do for our community, uh, which is fantastic. And you're getting at another one of the key components of strong social capital, and it's that notion of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. I will do for you and you will do for me. And it's not a transactional thing. It's something that we value. It's something that we're getting out of the exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not coerced and it's not pressurized in any in any way. And neither necessary though, is it expected? Is it, you know, I don't do it in order to get something back. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite a powerful, it can be quite a powerful force. I'm really grateful for your time. Loved everything that you've said, but certainly the, the diaries, I'd love to keep in touch with that. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything this podcast can do to, to help that, then please ask. And David, I'm, I'm really keen on this notion of the schools filling that gap that's mm-hmm. emerging around being a hub, around maybe social infrastructure that goes further and beyond just being somewhere where people learn things mm-hmm. um, or maybe play some sport or wh- whatever it might be, that traditional school and community hub role, perhaps. So I'd be really interested in keeping in touch with that. And I suppose the only thing I would say is just just watch out for those elves. They're probably going to want double time in March. <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to do it for nothing. I'm sure. Five, six, seven, ten years time, people are going to think back. Do you remember we had him in the summer? Remember that, you know, that, that pandemic? That, like, and we had Santa in the, in crazy, the summer. And crazy. All create ha- happy memories. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it harks back as well to the, the title. Uh, or the subtitle, if you like, of, of episode 24, when we spoke to the people up in Maiskirchen. And James um, said that now the time for normal rules goes out the window. And I think Santa in June is a perfect example of that. <laughs> best luck to you both. Thanks, Russell. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Community Development Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at comdevtpodcast, C-O-M-M-D-E-V-T podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, why not become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast.